This is episode number four, Redefining Manhood with Joshua Banks. Welcome. My name is Oleg Loki, and this is the Overcoming Odds podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Our guest today is someone that I've been wanting to have for quite some time. He's been a minister, an officer of the law, a speaker, and a community leader. In addition to all of those, he's also an author of a newly published book, Jesus, Others Do. Without further ado, please welcome Joshua Banks. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. Thanks for spending some time with us. Absolutely. Now, let me clarify. I didn't exactly retire on my own from law enforcement, but one through one way or the other, I'm no longer doing that, but it was a good time. I had a lot of fun. That's phenomenal. Um, tell, let's just dive right into it. Tell sure. us a little about the, bo- about the book, why you started this, yeah. how does it relate to your bigger you know, vision and picture, like sure. what do you want to do with this? So uh, the book is titled Jesus, Others, You, The Self-Centered Gospel. Um, probably the first thing to talk about would be the title because when people hear self-centered, their minds immediately go to selfish. And when you think of selfish, you're talking about the idea of taking away from other people so that you can mm. satisfy your own wants and desires. <clears throat> Whereas the word centered is more about the idea of being anchored, having a foundation. When you're centered, you're not all over the place. Your mind isn't wandering. So you're centered and the idea of self is about identity. And so when you have an identity, you can allow yourself to be centered or or grounded with that identity rather than needing to take from other people to feel more alive or to get what you want. You You can recognize that you have something on the inside of you that allows you to be the life that you need to be to where you can give to others rather than take from others. So that was the idea behind the title. Uh... The book in itself was probably my reaction to uh, growing up in church. Okay. Uh, I spent seven years as a a young adult pastor, and I enjoyed my time doing it. I enjoyed the people. I just learned a lot about the culture of the church world, especially the one that I was in. But I began to observe that it wasn't just my, my specific church culture that was like that. A lot of it was in a lot of places. And so when I took a step back from that world, this book was my observation, my reaction, and uh, looking at things in a scriptural context was what we were doing as beneficial as we had advertised that it Mm. was, or was there a better way to do things than the way we had been doing it? Mm -hmm. And so when we grew up, Jesus, others, you was the way that we grew up. That's how they taught us. You know, Jesus first, others second, yourself last, because that's how you live a life of self-sacrifice and all that kind of thing. And it sounds good. You know, you have your spirituality up, number one, you think about the needs of others, number two, and then you put yourself last. Mm -hmm. And it sounds good. Unless you're a doctor. Because let's say you're a doctor, you're going to medical school. Okay, Mm -hmm. you've got this... High and lofty goal, your spirituality, that's first. And you can say that others would be your motivation for why you're doing things. But the reality of it is, is if you're in med school, mm-hmm. Josh Banks wants you to spend all your time in med school thinking about yourself. Yep. Study, go to class, make yourself the best doctor you can be. You're in med school to be a doctor. I need you to be focused on what is it that you need to do in this season to make you the best version of you possible because I might need you in the next couple of years, and I need you to be a doctor that's invested in yourself so that I can actually reap the benefits of your investment. So that was a lot of the thought process that went into the book. When did you first start to question that as far as, you know, you bring up a good point regarding religion, like God being first, then you put yourself, and then you put other things. When did you begin to understand that and say, okay, Maybe, you know, X, Y, and Z is not first. Right. How do I reverse disorder? Was it throughout the time that you uh, went to church and practiced, or was it right after? 
I was I observed a lot of things while I was engaged in things the way that I was. But the thing that um, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the thing that probably brought stuff to my attention the most was seeing how for all the people that were signing off on what we were telling them, mm-hmm. how many of them were actually seeing improvements in the quality of their life. So you sell this product, and I don't mean to say that to, to push anything down, but you sell this product of faith and spirituality to people, and you tell them that, okay, if you if you put this into your life, this is going to bring peace, this is mm-hmm. going to bring happiness, this is going to bring joy, and the list goes on. The issue is that a lot of people... Their lives weren't getting better. It's almost like it's almost like they had switched addictions, and we just gave them something that was a little less destructive to be addicted to. I see. You know, so you were an alcoholic or a crackhead or whatever, but now you've tossed all that because that's killing yeah. you. And now you go to church on Sunday, yeah. and now you you have these rituals that you engage in. And again, I'm not trying to take away from any of that stuff. I think it's important. It has its place, but it has to have its place in a broader scheme of something that actually improves the quality of your life. And if the quality of your life improves, then a result of that is that the quality of the lives affected by your life are going to be improved. And that wasn't something that was focused on as much as you need to come in, you need to get right, and you need to think about others first and quit being self-selfish. Right. Um, Getting better in life is a process. Mm -hmm. And doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. And if you've ever dealt with any recovering drug addicts, there's a lot of time that they have to invest in paying attention to themselves mm-hmm. so that they know that they're not putting themselves in a position for failure or whatever. There's a lot of introspection that has to happen. You have to know what your own triggers are. You have to spend a lot of time with yourself to figure out... What, what makes me more susceptible or less susceptible? Like you have to really learn yourself just to get out of that addictive lifestyle. Exactly. Because if you don't, then you'll find yourself putting yourself in positions to make those things happen again. And, and if that be the case for people going out of AA or NA, why would we not think that the same thing would apply to any level of spirituality to where you lived your life one way before, now you're going to switch and come to a different way of living but it's not like you forgot what life was like before you switched over. Mm-hmm. So you have to take a, a, a time to let somebody kind of understand, like, who am I? What's going on inside of me? How does, how does that all fit in the context of this belief system that I have? And I really wanted to target on that because I, I saw too many people feeling lost. Like, it was just another activity. It was just another fix. It was just another addiction. But just like any other drug, you get high, but that high doesn't ever last, and it's not fulfilling. Do you think it's partially because religion is forced upon people sometimes? So, like, for me, for example, when I was younger, um, I used to believe in God. I was probably 9 or 10 years old. And then around that time, I think 10 or 11, that's when I stopped. And the reason why I stopped was because first, you know, I I was forced into it. Mm -hmm. I was forced into it by... um, my sister and everyone else around me and also you know I was at a time where I didn't have answers I was living in an orphanage with like zero hope of making it out to a better future so that's when I made the decision on my own to um, believe in a different system and more so myself and just my own abilities for what I can create do you think a lot of the problems that people face is because they're forced into a practice which may or may not benefit them? I think that's part of it. <clears throat> it's always difficult to love something that's forced on you. So I definitely think that is a part of it. I think a I wouldn't say a bigger issue, but another element of that is the message that's being taught to people because you go to 50 different churches and you're going to have 50 different messages and 50 different versions of the same story. Yeah. And so there becomes a lot of confusion in that. You know, you can grow up in some areas where, you know, God hates you and he's looking for reasons to kill you. And the only reason why he didn't kill you is because Jesus came and forced him to not kill you. And that, mm-hmm. you have that version. You know, you have another version where, you know, God is all about love. It doesn't matter what you do. Everything's okay. You've got that version. You've got, you know, you've got so many varying versions of the story 
that a lot of people honestly just get confused and they give up because the people that you go to to get answers don't really seem to have answers because somebody else will have an answer that contradicts the last answer that you were being told. So I think that there's value in understanding what you as the individual bring to the table because unless you see value in yourself, then it's very difficult to see value in the rest of the world or the value that you give to the rest of the world Absolutely. is 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 not sincere because you're trying to get something or project something out there that you don't have internally to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so now you're 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 you know I actually mentioned this in the book where you're making charges on an account. Like your your love is like a credit card that when it comes time to actually pay that, you don't really have the substance to give that. So you're just going out there and just making these these little false assumptions. And you know, my 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 own personal journey, and again, I'm very much a Christian, but I'm very much a Christian in a very non-traditional sense, because I look at things in a different perspective. When when Jesus spoke to people, he was real big on emphasizing the people. He he came to a group of people and said the kingdom of heaven is within you. That right. blew a bunch of people's minds because they were expecting this military uh, um, king type leader to come back and take over Rome and now he comes and he blows their minds and says no the kingdom that you're looking for isn't out here it starts in there. Mm-hmm. And so it goes back to what you're talking about you said well I had to start believing in myself. If you start to see value in yourself as the individual and recognize, wait a minute, let's say you're questioning God. If there's a God in the universe, of all the things he made, he made me. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll start right there. I know he made me. Mm-hmm. So let's start here. I've got something to and give back to this up. world and I can build that up. Mm-hmm. And you, we have to teach people that we are creative beings. No matter what your, your spiritual backing is, we are designed to create. Right. Through our words, through our actions. That's just what we do. And when we're not taught that as the primary focal point of our lives, then we create regardless, but we create irresponsibly. Yeah. If I don't know that my words are literally creating something, every time I speak something, I'm saying a bunch of stuff. And, and I'm creating this world, but I'm doing it irresponsibly. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about bastard children where some guy's going out and making a bunch of kids irresponsibly. How many bastard worlds have we created because we've never taken responsibility for our words? Oh, absolutely. You know. Absolutely. How does this relate to the bigger picture? What is the bigger picture? Like, who, who are you trying to be? How does religion and uh, your beliefs how do they align with where you see yourself? It's a good question. Um, I heard a definition of religion once that religion requires repeat paying customers. Um, and it's a system that requires these repeat paying customers. So for me, I've kind of distanced myself from the idea of just being religious. And I'm also not in the place where I'm like, oh, I'm just spiritual. Because a lot of people say that, and it's such an abstract term that means a million things to a million people. I see myself, um, first and foremost, as a Christian. But what that means to me is that God chose to have relationship with this world. And God desires to continuously have relationship with this world. And he has many mechanisms and ways of doing that. But his primary method of touching and having relationship through this world is through those that bear his image. And so I see my life as an extension of what I was given to begin with. Like you said, you know, you recognize you've got some size, so you've got something to build on. Yeah. Um, it is my job to number one recognize that I am a creator mm-hmm. because I'm made in the image and likeness of a creator. And so in Genesis, God gives mankind two laws. He tells them about the tree, he says, Don't eat, blah blah, blah. but he gives them two 
instructions when he first makes man. He says, be fruitful and multiply mm -hmm. and have dominion. That's the first thing he ever told man that he wanted to do. First thing he was concerned about. You be fruitful, you multiply, you have dominion. So when we're talking about what does it mean to be fruitful, that means that I as an individual need to produce fruit. Yes. Positive yeah. fruit. Stuff that's life-giving. Because every fruit that that, that, that that comes has a seed inside of it, and that fruit can be used for sustenance and, and, and to multiply. Mm -hmm. And so be fruitful, give life, and multiply. So continue to, to multiply the, your, your life-giving attribute, attributes, and then have dominion. Dominion isn't, no, isn't necessarily about taking over by force. As much as it is influencing a domain, if you go into a, a certain king's a place that's under a certain king's dominion, you should be able to know that you're in a place, you're in American territory because there's a change in the culture. You should be able to know that you're in German territory, or whatever, because there's a change in the culture. And so the idea is recognize that I am a creator. My life will produce fruit, either good or bad. That fruit. Is going to multiply, but my job is to multiply that fruit. Mm. You see what I'm saying? My job yeah. is to multiply that fruit. Be fruitful yourself, mm -hmm. multiply, teach somebody else how to do it. And when you teach somebody else how to do it, and they teach somebody else how to do it, and they teach somebody else how to do it, what you do is you begin to influence a culture. And that's where dominion comes from. It's not a forced dominion. I don't have to come in and put a gun in your head and make you do <laughs> something. Not, right? and, well, and that's the problem with religion as it's been historically. Because what happens is people, in the absence of taking the time to be fruitful themselves, to disciple anyone based on the good fruit that they themselves are producing, they're lazy. So now I can just force you to do something. And then I can threaten you with hell, or I can threaten you with this, or I can threaten you with all these things. And it takes all the responsibility off of me as the individual to first and foremost, you be fruitful. And then you multiply, teach somebody else how to be fruitful the way that you are being fruitful. And so, you know, I, I, I think that the whole system in many, in many ways has lost track of what the primary purpose was. And I'll fast forward when Jesus leaves... The last thing he tells his disciples, he says, he says, go out into all the world and make disciples of all men. Now, if you listen to that as an independent statement, okay, that is what it is. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. But if you listen to that statement in the context of what the first thing God ever told man to do was, it's the same thing. You be fruitful, you multiply, and then you go out into all the world and make disciples. Have dominion. He's telling them the exact same thing. And so the idea, again, is not conversion through force. It's not my job to tell you you're going to hell. That's not my job. Absolutely. It's my job to be fruitful as an individual, to bear fruits of love, joy, and peace, the type of things that, that attract people, the type of thing that brings life to other people's lives. Like That's my first and primary goal, be fruitful, and then multiply that fruit into somebody else's life. So that they're encouraged to do the exact same thing. And then we influence the culture because people are drawn to the things that work. Wow. You know? Dude, I'm blown away. <laughs> I'm, I'm blown away. So, okay, so you talk a lot about caring and service. And you've clearly done a lot of that throughout your life. Were you always like that? Or were you, a, were you always a giver? Or were you a taker? And you made the transition from one to the other. You know, it's interesting because many times people equate the service that we give out to others as something that um, places you in one category of being a giver or being a taker. And I say that because your why is everything. You know, why do you do what you do? Mm -hmm. You know, when I was with the sheriff's office, I put in, documented over 8,000 hours of community service. I had, uh, I was given their highest community service award, an award that I don't know if anybody else in the department at the time had it. Um, and it didn't mean anything to me because the award isn't why I did what I did. 
But there are a number of people, and I'm going to answer. I'm taking the long way, but Just I'm going to answer your question. Product. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was. I've always had a heart to give because I found joy in seeing other people happy, but it wasn't like happy at my expense. Like I, I enjoyed them being happy when we were doing things or, or seeing them happy. And if that meant, you know, that I got to participate in something that would make them happy, well then that's awesome. You know, my dad was a, my adopted dad was a, um, and I say adopted because I was adopted as a baby. Um, and so there's a lot of similarities in, in, in the kind of the worlds that we come from. But my adopted dad was a pastor. And so he's real big on, on serving the community. He was big on going to visit people in the hospitals. And I remember being, I remember on Thanksgiving uh, going to soup kitchens and feeding the homeless. I remember he'd go to people's houses and go, you know, visit their mothers and that kind of thing. So I was always exposed to a life that was very... Um, a life that saw value in affirming the values, uh, the value of others, and the value in others, and so by seeing that, you um, you tend to mimic what is modeled in front of you. Um, and so, going back to what I first brought up, <clears throat> as I began to get in this world of you know ministry and service and all this kind of stuff, I began to notice that everybody serves for the same reasons. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Some people serve because it's it's in them to, to do better that. themselves or to help out others, and others do it for attention. Yeah, you know, and they do it, and they'll they'll they'll, they'll make it real big, you know, because they need you to see. Hey, look, I'm doing something for the community. Hey, check me out. Look at how selfless I am. Mm-hmm. See, because I'm not concerned about myself. I'm concerned about you. You know, again, I go back to Jesus. Jesus talked about, he says, when you fast, don't be like the Pharisees that go and announce it to everybody. He says, though, they're, they're getting their reward right there. What's their reward? Their reward is a little 15 seconds of attention that they were looking for. That's all you're getting out of it. And a lot of people get caught up in that 15 seconds of fame and easy come, easy go. You know, I want to do something that's going to last, but I also want to do it from a place of, you know, how can I really leave an impact on this world? Because legacy is everything. And we only have a certain amount of time to Do live. Get the job done. Yeah. And most of us, <laughs> when we die in the next hundred years, no one's going to even remember our names. I mean, just think about that. Like a hundred years from now, 99% of the people you know right now. It will be as if they never existed on this planet. No one's going to remember them. And the only people that do get remembered are those that that leave a legacy. So could one say then, well, see, Josh, you're just being selfish because now you're concerned about what's going to happen 10 years down the road or, I mean, 100 years down the road. Listen, if what I do right now has such an impact that 100 years down the road people are still getting the, the, the benefits of what I've done, I'll take that. And if that makes me selfish because I'm so concerned about what legacy I'm leaving a thousand years, I'll take that selfish. Call it, call it what it is. That's fine. But, but the idea is that I want to leave the type of legacy that when my kids grow up, they say, Dad spent his time building up other people. I'm going to spend my time building up, building other, people. up other people. Because we see what that did in his life. So that's when I'm, we see what that did in the lives of all those people that, that they were impacted. I want to impact. I want to change. And then they start having this idea of, well, man, I got to live up to that. I got to live up to that name. Mm-hmm. Now, that might sound superficial, but, but when you train people, again, be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion. Dominion is about culture. When the culture is established at a certain level and the culture in this household is all the people with this are going to do that. And you set a culture and you hold people accountable to that culture. It's not necessarily a bad thing. No, it's not. I mean, that's a per- that, that would be a way to do it. And that's how, that's how I've looked at it is you set that goal because at the end of the day, we're all, we all have that goal, right. overarching goal and dream that we want to accomplish. So why not, in a way, build that foundation through your family? Yeah. So that once, you know, whether it's through adoption or birth or whatever, once you do have those kids of, of your own, then they can look up to it and say, oh, okay, 
the goal is already there. Mm-hmm. In a way, you're giving them the why mm-hmm. or part of a why, and then from there, they just have to structure the how. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a there's a big um, conversation on uh, mimetic theory, uh, Dr. Rene Girard, and he talked about how people are created to mimic a model and and we're so designed this way that you can actually manipulate a person's desires by the model that you put Actions. in front of them yeah so you know you turn on TV and oh LeBron James drinks Sprite I like LeBron James I want to be cool like LeBron James I yeah. think I want a Sprite yeah. and and if it works, I mean, that's like the essence of, of marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, they call it keeping up with the Joneses and sales stuff. That's like the whole essence of marketing. And if we took that same principle, because it's not necessarily bad, it's just a system. Yeah. And if we change out the way that, we're wired. Yeah. We change that out and we put in a different model in there. And the model is people that love each other, people care for first. each other. Yeah. And then that'll be what gets mimicked. And um, I'm not trying to talk too much about my book, but I'm going to throw something out here while we're having this conversation. Absolutely. So in my book, I bring up this idea that there's no such thing as a selfless act. Not at all. And especially coming from someone where you come from the church world, you do a lot of community service, everything, oh, that's a selfless act. That's a selfless act. Mm -hmm. So the idea I have is you get a benefit from everything you do at some level. Think about the mother that has five kids, okay? In her heart, she has this internal idea of what a good mother does. Yeah. And so because she wants to have inward agreement, then she will do externally what the internal says a good mother would do. So that means picking the kids up for practice and cooking and staying up late and waking up early and making sandwiches and tying shoes and all the selfless things that we would say, oh, she's so selfless. All she thinks about is those kids. That's not the case. What she's thinking about is I have this picture on the inside of me that says this is what good mothers do. And I'm going to live up to the standard of what a good mother does and that's going to control my outward actions. So if we recognize that there's no such thing as a selfless act, because here's the problem. That same person that spends their whole life giving, 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 and they're telling themselves, this isn't for me. It's a selfless act. I don't get anything involved in this. The number one gripe you hear from these people is no one appreciates me. Nobody appreciates me. Nobody sees what I do. I do all this work and nobody turns around and does it for me. The problem is that you're looking for... for uh, um, so for affirmation from a source that it wasn't necessarily designed to come from in the beginning. Short-term gratification. Yeah, you're looking for it. Now watch this idea. Watch this idea. Let's say that I identify that Josh Banks loves. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. So when I get the opportunity to show love, will you benefit from it? Absolutely. But who benefits most? I do. Because I've affirmed myself by doing the thing that defines who I am. And you just gave me another opportunity to reaffirm who I am. And whether you actually acknowledge it or not is insignificant at that point. Because my love that I give on you, it came from here. I wasn't looking for you to give it to me back. Now, if you give it to me back, even better. But the thing is, like, if we would own who we are and own what we do then we could find more pleasure in doing the things that would help other people because we wouldn't be waiting for them to say thank you every time we did something. No, I forgive you because that's who I am. I don't hold stuff against you because that's just who I am. It's more beneficial for me to be a certain way than it is, oh, I have to do this selfless act because it's for you that I'm doing it. No, it's not. Fit in with the society. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you find your why? I know you spoke a lot about you know your past, your sure. upbringing. Yeah, obviously, your dad sounds like had a huge influence on you. How like was there ever a turning point where you said, "Okay, this is what I'm meant to do, and this is what I'm going to commit to"? I think that you see your why in parts. 
um, I've always had this passion about being involved in, in, in changing the world and leadership. I, I was exposed to a lot of it. Um, but, and I would see myself. Are are there certain steps that people can take that are searching for their why and their purpose as far as that would help them figure that out? Sure. You know, like there's certain, because I mean, you know this as well, like reflection steps. Okay. Right. You may start off by simply journaling. Yeah. All the experiences, figuring out those bigger picture moments. But then how do you transform that into a more concrete how mm-hmm. for where you want to get to? So here's one of my things. And, and as, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking about it. <clears throat> one of the quickest ways I found my why was by identifying what things make me mad. Um, Interesting. Because I feel that the things that excite you emotionally are the things that you're attached to spiritually. Okay. So if there's something that you constantly... So for me, it was the type of leaders that would abuse people. I saw that a bunch. And, 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 and just crap in the, the, the world of church and that here are people that are literally looking to someone because they really feel a connection to God, but they may not feel good enough to get to God themselves. So they really want to work with these people and these people are taking advantage of that. And that used to infuriate me. And so I, I, I started to see that the, the anger was just a, a twisted side of an emotion that was already, it was, it, was it was the frustration of a connection that I had that was already there. So I would tell people, what are the things that excite you the most, both negatively and positively? Like if you're the type of person that every time you walk by, you know, um, uh, um, uh, a, a packed trash can, and that just makes you so. I can't believe this trash can is full, and so you'd rather just empty it yourself than wait, wait for somebody else to do it. Or you feel like, man, somebody's got to fix it. I'm gonna fix it. Like you might find that the things that anger you or excite you the most are things that you have a deeper connection to, and it's worth exploring. Like, what are the things that you stop and notice, even when you don't even want to think about it anymore? I'm not gonna look at this anymore. Now, I was on YouTube the other day watching like the 50 worst preachers in history type things. And I was just making me so mad. But then I got done with that video and I was like, oh, there's the 30 worst preachers in history. <laughs> I watched that video too. It made me so mad. But it's worth stopping and paying attention because for me personally, you know, I had the opportunity to mentor people and we did a conference and all that kind of stuff. Now I have my platform to impact change in people that these guys may have been able to impact. Mm-hmm. Or people that might be looking for this kind of stuff, I have an, an opportunity to influence and impact and do things in a positive way where it's being done in a negative way. So a, a how definitely would be figure out the things that really excite you emotionally, whether positively or negatively excite you and, and stop long enough and just, just pay attention to that. You know, it's a good place to start. Pay attention to that. See if there's something there. And then you can start experimenting with that. You know, hey, well, what if I dibble and dabble in this world? See what kind of experiences you get out of that. Because I think a lot of times our whys are right in front of our face. It's just that we put so many masks on to be what we think we need to be in the moment. Um, It kind of gets harder and harder to hear or to see what that is. But it's that one thing you can never shake, though. Huh. Because you've always got, everybody's always got one thing that no matter how big you get, you're still attracted to it, whether it be attracted to it as you want to be with it or attracted to it as in you always see it, you always recognize it, you always want to fix it. Yeah, there's there's that emotional connection. I think that people need to be more attentive to really what's going on with their bodies, obviously, self centered, like being centered. What's going on with, with all this? And how, mm-hmm. how, how am I reacting to my world? So what made you upset or excited to start Mastering Manhood? Oh, man. Excitement, definitely. We were asked by um, the dean of a university, uh, dean one of the local community colleges, how they could partner with us and, and help us uh, expand our vision. I work with a, a group of men. Uh, with a nonprofit, mm-hmm. and we were asked, you know, what, how could they serve us? And we got with each other, and we said, um, you know, we should do a men's conference. And we we held each other accountable to this crazy idea. And so, as 
the vision for the conference began to get clearer and clearer and I was able to articulate it more and more because I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be. Like I could see this blurry picture, but I wasn't even quite sure what it was going to be. So. Did you know that that was the element that was needed or did you kind of go blindfolded and say, okay, this may or may not work? No, I... <clears throat> I felt like it was going to work from the get-go, and it, and here's the why. So many times, people allow their differences to keep them from working together. Um, it's one of the observations I saw in the church world is that we, you know, if you were of a different denomination, we may or may not, you know, work with you because we don't agree on everything. But everyone also acknowledges that there are problems that impact all of us. And so the approach that we had with the conference was, let's just get together on a foundation of truth, a foundation of love, a foundation of community. And let's just stop. Here's here's what we're going to do. And that's what we're going to get together on. I had Christians there. I had the Nation of Islam there. I had atheists there. I had straight guys there. I had gay guys there. It was just men. We're men. That's what we're doing. We're men. We're getting together. And we're going to bring speakers that are going to empower and strengthen men. And that was it. So I felt like that. I felt it was going to work. Because honestly, man, you look around at the world. People are getting tired of every little thing being just another thing to divide us. Yep. It's getting played out. And so we were able to produce, uh, to present an idea that, that, it's all right, cool, whatever, let all that stuff. In fact, I'll tell you what was crazy about the whole thing. So um, uh, Charlotte, Charlottesville, uh, where they had the big protests and stuff like that, and the people were fighting, and the KKK and all that kind of stuff. And so, so when we established the date, like there's a lot of buzz in the nation because there's all these race, the potential race war, everyone's mad, and this, that, and the other, Black Lives Matter fighting against, you know, the, the white supremacists and all that kind of stuff. Well, come to find out, the day of our conference, they were doing a, uh, a, a rally, a protest rally uh, in Austin. Like, the white supremacist group were meeting in Austin that same day. And so people were like, well, man, you know, you think they're going to come protest your event? Are you going to say something about it? Because I found out that there were some other groups in Austin uh, that were planning on going down there to be a counter-protest that. You guys going to partner up with them, blah, blah, blah? No, I'm not. I'm not going down there. I'm not going to pay them any attention. Why? We made an agreement that we're going to do this conference. The foundation is going to be on truth, community, and togetherness. If somebody else wants to do something on this side of town, that's their business. I'm not moved by that one thing. We're committed to what we were founded upon. That's all we're going to deal with. We didn't even talk about it. I, didn't think, I never heard anything in the news that day. Um, I guess it really happened. I don't know. But they never came and protested us, so we were all good. Wow. Yeah. Now, okay, so how, how does one master manhood? Oh. That's a great question. I've been thinking about that quite a bit. And the best I can conclude right now is that the first thing you have to do in your quest to master manhood is to recognize that it's a journey, it's not a destination. If you think that there's this level that you're going to hit, and then, ah, boom, I'm a man, you're wrong. In my experience with meeting a lot of people, a lot of guys, they get to a certain point in their life, and because I'm accomplished, well, look, I've made it. But life will force you to continue to grow. And I think the best thing you can do is recognize this is something I'm going to be working on the rest of my life. And so I think the first thing you can do in the idea of mastering manhood is to commit yourself to the journey. I, don't, I, I know this is never going to end, but as long as I have breath in my lungs, I'm going to be a better man tomorrow than I was today. And I'm going to get around people that are better than me and have, have more experience than I do or can stretch me and can pull me, that can hold me accountable, that can make me a man of integrity, that can make me uh, um, live up to my word when I speak my word, that we can reintroduce what it means to have honor in our, in our society. I had a conversation with a guy the other night who is a, a political 
consultant, I asked him the question, how do we restore integrity to politics? And he kind of looked at me and chuckled and kind of did that exact same thing that you did. But think about that. Because when you talk about politics to kids, oh, look at President such and such. Oh, look at Senator such and such. Like you idolize these people. Or they do it with sports figures. Oh, look at such and such. And they come to find out, oh, he raped this person. Everyone's freaking out about uh, in Hollywood. Oh my gosh, who'd have thought that these people were raping each other? Blah, blah, blah. It's because the people that we've made examples were people that were putting on fronts to begin with. We didn't know them. Where are the where are the men that say what I say is what I'm going to do? And I'm going to surround myself with men that will hold me accountable to that. And on top of that, mm-hmm. I'm going to surround myself with men that I can be vulnerable and weak in front of because the other thing that's killing men is this false sense of quote unquote masculinity. masculinity. Yep. I have to be strong. Men don't cry. Blah 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 blah. And so these same guys, it's funny when I worked in the in the in law enforcement, oh man, everybody cries in jail. Men talk in jail. And they try to act hard, they do. But everybody cries in jail. You know, and and, and there's this whole fake facade that people are trying to hold up uh, it needs to crumble the sooner the better the more we start realizing that the people that we put on TV in front of us aren't really the heroes that we need to be looking up to all the time the more that we recognize that the, the, that Mike's what they call it, the six six feet of influence or six whatever six square inches sphere. of influence the sphere of influence mm-hmm. the people that I can touch that, that's who I'm called to touch that's it so I'm called to touch people I can touch. So my kids, the people I have influence over, I have influence in their life, that's that's my first place to start. First point of contact, yeah. But the first thing, again, going back, is I have to be centered in who I am and my yeah. image. And if I'm mm-hmm. fighting all my life trying to figure out what does it mean to be a man, blah, blah, blah. Here's what I tell guys all the time. If you don't know what it means to be a man, find somebody that looks like what you think is a man and get to know them just a little bit better. Mm-hmm. It's a start. It's better than just sitting there by yourself. Oh, absolutely. It's a start. Absolutely. You know, do something. So, okay, we talk a lot about leadership and all these, a lot of people who are put in these positions are clearly not fit to be leaders. Mm-hmm. What defines a great leader? So when this conference started happening, I spent uh, the vast majority of 2017 meeting with different leaders in the community. And there was something that I noticed that stood out to me more than anything else. The best quality I've ever seen in a leader, because let's define leadership. Leadership is influence. It's the ability to influence. Plain and simple. The best quality in a leader, in my opinion, is humility. The worst quality in a leader, in my opinion, is ego. Mm-hmm. You want to destroy a company, you want to destroy a culture, put a bunch of people with ego in power. We start looking at what we got going on in here. You got a bunch of egos running stuff. You got a bunch of egos manipulating and controlling things. You look at the way the laws are developed. And so it's not like this stuff just happened yesterday. This stuff's been going that way for a long time. And what is it? Those that are built on their ego have to protect their ego. But a great leader... A great leader, and I got the opportunity to meet a number of them. You know, I sit with Peter, and he and I were talking, and you know, Peter's Peter's a rock star. And I said, you know what's most interesting to me about you? He's like, what's that? I said, you have no ego. He was like, and he looked at me like, well, duh. <laughs> and then I started noticing, like, when I I know when I'm in the presence of a great. Man, and I've met a couple of them in my lives that have been with presidents and been with world leaders and stuff like that. They have no need to prove anything to you, and so it doesn't intimidate them that you don't address them the right way. They're not; their image isn't defined by you building up their ego. But then I know when I'm in the room with the person that wants to be that, but they're not that; they're not quite there yet. Those are the guys that you have to. 
well, you got to call them by the title. You got to address them the right way because they need you to reaffirm who they are. Who they are. Because they don't really know. They're not really for sure. I'll never forget I had a dude. It's funny he ends up listening to this podcast. <laughs> I'll never forget I had this one dude I met with one time. And in the course of our conversation, he asks me, um, so did you look me up before you came here? I sat and I thought about that. All of these people that I know and have met with, and you're the only person that's ever asked me that question. And in and in the grand scheme of things, probably one of the least significant, not insignificant, but in consideration of all the different people that I was meeting, if I were to rank them all, definitely not one of the top level leaders I was meeting, but you're the only one that took the time to ask me that question. Now, does that not mean that I shouldn't have looked people up? It's not the point. The point is that I noticed that these guys, that there are people that feel the need, and it's men and women, it doesn't make a difference, that whenever you feel the need to project something on somebody else, your projection that you're having to push out is usually a mask to cover up whatever insecurity you have going on the inside. And that's why good leaders can be humble. Because hmm. you telling them they're wrong isn't going to mess up their image. That's why I teach. Uh, I tell men that how do you how do you master masculinity? You you embrace the fact that it's a journey and not a destination. Because if it's a journey, then I can be wrong. Yeah. I can adjust my journey. If it's a destination, once it's I think stop. I get there, well, you can't tell me nothing because I've reached my point of masculinity. And you can't go beyond that. You know. So vul- vulnerability. That's. I mean, we obviously do that a lot yeah. through Friends of Peter, yeah. especially. So um, we have an understanding of how that works. But for those that do not, like, how do you become vulnerable? I mean, do you go running outside and scream, you know, I'm vulnerable, I'm vulnerable? Like, what do you like? What do? You do? Like, how, how do you dig deeper into yourself sure. to tell that story that you've been wanting to for however long? I think vulnerability is a... The Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. So when I'm when I'm in a situation where I'm able to experience love, the fear and the apprehension that would normally keep me from exposing myself, it dissipates. And so that type of an environment is not the type of an environment that happens on the street. The kind Absolutely. of environment happens through relationship, uh, an intimate relationship at that. So I think in terms of vulnerability, um, relationships are key. Um, people you can trust, that you've watched, you've observed, people that don't have anything to really gain from you. That's why I love, I love meeting up with guys that are a little bit more accomplished in life than I am because maybe it gives me the satisfaction of this guy and what, what does that mean exactly for, me. for you accomplished is it more like you know obviously not a higher rank in a company but like just more experience overall more money it could be a combination of all of them like yeah it could be a combination of all of them I mean because there's certain <clears throat> we all experience um, uh, um, accomplishments in different arenas right so you, you might have one guy who's solid on Marriage. He's been married for fifty years, but you know he's not the richest man in the world. So he he'd be a great guy to go to for relationship advice. Mm-hmm. He well he might be, you know he at least it would at least be worth entertaining the conversation because obviously he's got a track record of that. Um, so for me it's kind of different things, but really what I look for now is in terms of like so I'll look at a guy and is he is he solid in in in, in his. Uh, like the way he carries himself foundation. and his foundation. Uh, I definitely love talking to older guys that have kind of gone through, they're retired, they've been to the business world. I love the guys that have a lot of accomplishments and they've, you know, reached the pinnacle of their career and stuff like that. But the ones that you can still touch. Because it's something to be said when you can climb to the top of a mountain but not forget where you came from and then mm. put yourself in a position for the people that weren't at the top of the mountain to be able to touch you. Like Jim Bledsoe came to our conference. Stu was the vice president of FedEx. Think about that for a minute. He was the vice president of FedEx. He's hanging out with me. (laughs) 
Here's a man that obviously has nothing to prove. There's nothing that I that I perceived at the moment that I could give him that he would need me to be around, and that might be just my perception of myself, mm-hmm. which is fine. But, but the point is that when you can get around people, and it doesn't have to be somebody at the top of the food chain, it could be me and you sitting there talking. And when you find that you can talk with people, try it out. You know, a little vulnerability. You don't have to give everybody everything, you know. But especially when you get a group when there's synergy, there's a type of synergy you can kind of feel. Again, that perfect love casts out fear. When you start feeling that love is, is in the room, and for some people that means go out and find an environment where people are talking about love. If you're in an abusive relationship, and a lot of people are, whether it be physical abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, to where all you see is a cycle of abuse, and you want a better life, put yourself in an environment where they don't tolerate cycles of abuse. Go ask for help. Pick up a phone. Call a hotline. Do something just to expose yourself to something different than what you're you're accustomed to so that you can be in a place where you can feel like maybe I can trust you. And then you can expose yourself a little bit because you have to be vulnerable because whatever you whatever you keep in will ultimately like rot from the inside out. Oh, absolutely. And, and it will come out eventually, yeah. whether you like it or not. So you find ways to let it ooze out evenly and smoothly. You know, do what you can to let things out. That way it's, it's controlled because like you said, it's going to come out eventually. Mm-hmm. And you want it to come out on your terms rather than come out on its own terms. Someone you can't control especially. it. Yeah. Now, okay, so is there anything that you are afraid to talk about in afraid life? Afraid to talk about. There are things I don't like talking about. Um, I was married. I'm divorced. Uh, and what would the reasons behind that be? Is it just to not farther ex- expose yourself, your personality, or is it to maybe not disrespect the other people? Or you know, it's so it's, be- beyond this setting. You right. know, think about like any other conversation you have with someone. Is there a subject if they were to bring up you would say, I gotta pass on that? Not really. And maybe there is, and I just haven't tapped it yet. Um, But kind of backing up a little bit, it's never my intention to say anything that's going to um, disrespect or, or demean another individual mm-hmm. so so that is one thing but I think the hard part of anybody is when you have conversations that kind of expose you as as not what you would like others to see in you mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. we all tend to put our, our best foot forward and then we have to have conversations where that other side of you um, is forced to the front it's a little bit difficult, but because I'm in a lot of settings where I'm mentoring and teaching and things of that nature, I I have found. Watch me give you something else deep. I'm sorry. You tell me to shut up if I keep need going, to. Keep going. So, I tell you, I'm a Christian, and when I study scripture, I used to study scripture for how can I teach somebody something else? You know, show them something real cool, whatever. Now I look at it for. Where do I see myself in this? Okay, So there's a scripture about Jesus. And it's a a prophecy about the Messiah in Isaiah 53. And it says that he, being the Messiah, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It says the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we were healed. This is Isaiah 53. And most mm-hmm. people talk about this is this is talking about Jesus. But but just think about it from another perspective. What if it's talking about me? Because what if the wounds that I have gone through are 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 for somebody else's mishaps? What if I was what if I was bruised for other people's transgressions, wounded for other people's iniquities? What if all the stuff I've been through, what if my scars, my scars? are the reason that other people can experience happiness in life. And and it's the fact that I've gone through it and lived through it that I can use my story 
to have somebody else not have to experience what I experienced, or they can help work their way through what they're experiencing because I lived through it. And so there's a part of me that realizes that it's my dark parts that when I kind of let them out, it lets other people know that it's okay to let their stuff out too. And I'm not by myself. I'm not going through this alone. And it gives them a way out. It gives them a way of escape. And so Mm -hmm. I try to, I'm not perfect at it, uh, but I'm trying to get myself more and more in the habit of letting, um, man, I'm going to go back to scripture again. When Jesus comes back and, uh, oh gosh, it's in John, and they, you know, he was dead, and Thomas says, well, oh, and then Jesus comes back from dead, and the disciples are telling Thomas, hey, Jesus is back. And Thomas is like, whatever, I don't believe that until I see the nail scars in his hand, and I can put my hand on the scars, because he's dead, I saw him die. And so then Jesus comes in the room, and he, he, he shows up, and he says, hey, put your, put your finger in the scars of my hand, and this is the thought. Your scars are what let people know that you're real. The fact that you can show people your scars is what lets them know that you're authentic. Because people that have no scars are hiding something, in my opinion. Mm. And so I get to the point where I'm trying to work towards not having these taboo subjects with myself. Because at some point, whatever I'm hiding could be the very thing that somebody else needs to hear. You know. So, it's again, I'm not perfect at it. It's a process. But I think that way. Um... Because I dealt with a lot of people that were dealing... I had a lot of leaders in front of me growing up that had issues, man. And they never dealt with them. And they never talked about them. And so when they boiled over to to everybody else's world, now you got a mess to deal with. And it's not just the mess that, 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 that you're dealing with. It's now all these other people that believe this one thing about you or their lives were being impacted by... you got a whole just mess going on. How did that impact your life? Uh, did you I, go this similar route when you were, you know, becoming a leader on your own, like you had to keep certain things back and then you said, okay, that's not the way to do it? You gotta, well, you don't put all your business out there, obviously, mm-hmm. but what you also don't, what you also don't not do is um, isolate yourself to where you don't have people that you can confide in like you have to be in a position to where um you're always mentoring someone but you're always being mentored by somebody Mm. like if you don't put yourself in a position to where somebody can come and tell you all right dude you're messing up and you actually listen to that person yeah you're not going to grow and so i think that's one of the big differences i saw is like authentic relationships with people that respect you for who you are but they're not so caught up in your title to where they can't tell you about yourself. And, and I'm finding that more and more with different people that I'm purposely surrounding myself uh, with. Some that I feel like might be on my level. Some a little bit, you know, at a higher level, whatever. But the idea is you always want to have, you always want to be stretched. You always want to be pushed to grow. Always. And so that's one of the things I try to do. And it's one of the things I saw other leaders not do. Is that they didn't surround themselves with people that stretched them and called them on their own stuff. Because, I mean, we all don't do something stupid or say something stupid. But then you get to this point where can't nobody tell you that that was stupid? Come on, man. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Final thoughts. So, what brings you the most most joy in life? The most joy in life. Besides writing this book. (laughs) Writing the one that I'm working on now uh, has actually been great for me. Um, what's the can you give us a title can you give us some yeah details uh, on it sure it's called um, The Doctrine of Synchronization and so in this book Jesus Others You the Self-Centered Gospel we talk about the idea of centeredness and what it means to be centered and how your um, image uh, can be grounded on something internal. Like you can have like this solid place that you at, that you're at on the inside, and that can be where where you express to the world as opposed to putting up a front. That's the first book. Book number two is okay. So if that's the idea, how do you get there? What does that look like practically? What does that mean? What kind of steps would a person take to get centered as an individual? And so we kind of talk about the formation of self. Where does where do you get who you are from? Uh, we talk about the difference between solitude and isolation. 
Um, like we get into like this whole mental dive about where does this thing of self come from, and how do we how do we get it into a position where it benefits us and allows us to be centered so that we can project to the world um, who we are, who we authentically are in a way that mm. benefits everybody, you know. And it's funny because some people think, well, I'm just nasty. I'm like, I'm just mean. That's just who I am. That's not. That's your that's your uh, uh, defense mechanism. Because most people really aren't nasty and mean. Most people get that way because they feel like that's the way to defend themselves from looking weak and vulnerable, which we talked about earlier. But anyways, that's the kind of stuff we get into in the next book. Uh, I guess I'll probably sell the two at some point as a pair. Mm-hmm. Because one, the ideas are very complementary. Stepping stone to the other. Very different books. This is like going to be the easygoing, happy, I'm going to read this book. Oh, let's see what Josh is talking about. Thumb through it in an hour, be good. Next one's going to be like, oh, wow. Oh, let me go back and read that again. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, wanted to, I challenge myself to go a lot deeper. Um, so in terms of the things that make me happy, um, challenging myself to do something and seeing it happen makes me happy. Um, my kids make me happy. Um, knowing that my life means something to other people makes me happy. Um, and how do you see that? How are you able to measure that? I guess that's a better question. That is a good question. Sometimes it's big things like the conference. That'll be a big thing. You know, you put this thing on. It starts in your mind. You make it, you know, you, you work. It manifests. People send you all kinds of uh, uh, messages about feedback. how awesome it was. The feedback is all great. Instead of doing it once a year, we need to be doing this two or three times a year. We want you to do this. Like, you get all that kind of stuff, and it's beautiful. But I think the thing that probably builds me up the most honestly has been when I go to Friends of Peter and I'm hanging with a group of people that I get to see you know week in week out and it gets to a point to where you're starting you know you have one on one conversation with people just about life or whatever and somebody tells you man you said something the other day that changed my life or or every time you speak something you say impacts me or what and it's not an ego thing at all, but it's like you start to see that there's significance to the things that come out of your mouth. That's what we talked about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You're always creating a world with your words. But once you get to the point where you start taking responsibility of your thoughts and your actions, and you just really speak from that place of honesty and integrity, and then people will turn around and say, man, that helped me. Man, that helped me. That kind of stuff is is um, it's humbling um, because for so many years I wanted my voice to be heard and I don't think that it was heard because I wasn't saying the things that people wanted me to say mm. and now I'm in a place where no one's telling me what to say or what not to say and I'm really just kind of coming from whatever's in here mm-hmm. and people are being like man that really helped me and again going back full circle Talk about in the garden, that's what God told man. He said, be fruitful. Like, you personally produce fruit. So whatever it is that's causing you to not have good fruit in your life, if it's bitterness, hatred, anger, unforgiveness, like the stuff that's all jacking you up inside, figure out ways to deal with that so that you can produce fruits personally of love and peace and all that kind of stuff. You be fruitful. It's the best version of yourself. You be the best version of yourself. And then you just live authentically. You just live. Um... And that's how it multiplies. And that's how it's that's how it begins to saturate and permeate the culture. Wow. Alright, well, how do people find you? How do people find you? How do people find the book? Um, Anyone that ever wants to be a part of your life, <laughs> how do they do that? Um Enter at your own risk, you know what I'm saying? Uh but um the book uh, you can find it on anywhere books are sold online, barnesandnoble.com, Joshua Banks, Jesus Others You, The Self-Centered Gospel, amazon.com. Uh, it should be anywhere online. Um, you can find me on Facebook, uh, facebook.com backslash author Joshua Banks. Um, or you can find Joshua Banks on Facebook. <laughs> um, I'm, pr- I'm pretty easy to find. Perfect. So. 
Yeah. That's perfect. Hey, man. All right, man. Thanks a lot for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes, along with featured stand-up and speak-up stories and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Before we end today's episode, I'm curious to know, what brings you the most joy in life? Feel free to share your answer by tagging us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Overcoming Odds. Also, feel free to subscribe to our podcast, especially for next week's episode, as it is someone you simply do not want to miss.